Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about America rattled and what to do about it. Gordon Chang, China expert, joins me, and the Equality Act and Senator Rand Paul. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Now, hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. On several recent shows, we've talked about H.R. 1, the Democrat-sponsored bill in Washington in Congress that would essentially federalize all elections in America meaning the federal government takes over all election processes in every state, not just for federal elections, but for state and county local elections. All elections run out of Washington, clearly in, uh, in utter defiance of the Constitution's provision that says that election procedures are to be set by state legislatures, but far worse than the fact that they're simply taking, trying to take control of the elections is that what they're putting in place is essentially mandated permanent voter fraud. Mandating states to adopt the kind of procedures and processes that, such as they have in California, which result in fraudulent elections. Mandating permitting ballot harvesting. Mandating day of election registration, which is just a playground for election fraud mandating many, many provisions that red states already have, excuse me, blue states already have in place that permit and foment election fraud and voter fraud, interferes with the ability of states to clean out their election rolls, to remove the names of people who are deceased, who moved away, who are voting in some other state. It is full, chock full of election fraud processes, not just allowing them, mandating that states allow these kinds of practices that are, that are what leads to election fraud. But what, and I know I've been over this on my show several times, but I want to hit a new point about it, and that is this. We, the people, need to look at this bill, H.R. 1, and treat it the same way we would if, for example, Congress were saying, now that we think about it, we're going to reinstate slavery. Now that we think about it, we're going to take away the right of women to vote. It's that serious. We have to treat our opposition to HR1, not just on a laundry list of things, though all these things kind of matter, but treat it as though it is the central issue that will determine the future of fair elections in America, because it is. And we have to treat it in a way like we would a campaign. If you decided, for example, that you were getting behind some new candidate for president, you would organize. You would organize your friends in your community. You'd organize activists and leaders in your state. You would organize your legislature. You would get your legislature and say, I want you guys to get behind this person, or I want you to do this or that. Act, treat it like the threat to the future, to the freedom of America that it is. Because if we don't do that, it will pass. And Joe Biden, if he is even awake that day or alert, will sign it. And we will end up with no future ability to have fair elections in America. I'm sure ultimately if it passed, it would get challenged. But that leads me to my next concern about America in this first five. 
in the past, you'd say, well, um, that's so absurd, it's so out of line, it's so inconsistent with the Constitution that even if these people pass this, we'll go ahead and take it through the courts. We'll challenge it. Surely, with an alleged conservative majority at the Supreme Court, we'll get this thrown out. But we've learned recently there is no conservative majority at the Supreme Court. There is no constitutional, constitution-protecting majority at the Supreme Court. What we're facing in this country, H.R. 1 is symbolic of it because the left is saying they are going to take over and permanently steal all future elections. We're doing a show next week talking more detail about what's in this. I am not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole to tell you. It is the end of fair elections in America, where they put in H.R. 1. When you combine H.R. 1 with the other elements at play in Washington right now, the amnesty bill giving legalized citizenship and therefore voting rights to whatever the new number of people who are in America illegally, whether it's only 11 million or more like the 25 or 30 million, if you have H.R. 1, election fraud on steroids, Amnesty for everyone who's here illegally, who is ever, forever in a day going to remember, it was a Democrat party that made me legal. And how do you think they're going to vote? And then you have the combination of the intolerant Democrat administration in Washington, Democrat control across the board, White House, Senate, and House, with Washington looking like a third world country with barbed wire surrounding the Capitol, armed with machine gun guards guarding the capital of our country. The place is like a, a ghost town. It is alarming to look at. It is, a, it is a, an encampment appearance in Washington. And you have the combination of the Democrat Marxist takeover of America. You have now clearly academia going along with everything the Marxist administration wants. You have social media, big tech giants going along with everything the Marxist administration wants and gets. You have the just an entire sense of the leftist ideology that has overtaken Washington is now being enforced not just by those in government, but by the courts, by academia, by social media, even by corporate America. Freedom-loving, patriotic, constitution-loving Americans had better be awake every single day and understand your very freedoms are at risk. When you hear this administration saying that they're going to actually designate conversation, formally protected free speech conversation, about whether or not there was election integrity in 2020, whether or not the election was stolen, that is going to be labeled as, under the Biden plan, domestic terrorism, conversing about whether or not election fraud occurred. We are in a very, very serious place in this country. It's, very, it's just incumbent on every conservative to be awake to it, to recognize the level of threat to the future of freedom in America. And we haven't even gotten yet to whatever they're going to do with the impending Green New Deal tyranny and the ongoing tyranny under COVID and COVID-related restrictions in America. Friends, it's just a very serious time in America. If there ever was a time to be wide awake, to be alert to it, to recognize what's happening, this is it. Later in the show, I'm going to tell you more about what I'm doing on this show, America Can We Talk, to help galvanize, organize, and inspire freedom-loving Americans to get on board for the fight to preserve freedom. I'll talk about that a little later in the show. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. 
I mentioned the star show. We have Gordon Chang joining us, who's joined us in the past. He's always just a, a complete delight to have on the show. I'm so grateful whenever he's available. Um, and so I will want to just tell you briefly about him. I know many of you probably know his name and have heard him speak various places. Uh, he is an expert on China extraordinaire. Uh, he's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, uh, North Korea Takes on the World, both in Random House. He's spoken at every significant conservative organization, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, Heritage Foundation, Brookings, Cato, RAND, American Enterprise Institute, given testimony and briefings at National Intelligence Council, the CIA, the State Department, the Pentagon. He's a truly a, a national treasure in terms of understanding America's relations with China. And as we now enter the Biden administration and deal with the threats that China faces, uh, China presents to America, I thought it was time to check in with Gordon Chang and find out uh, how things are going with our relations with China and how the Biden administration is doing and in interacting with China. So with that, I'd like to, to welcome Gordon Chang. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Debbie, and thank you very much for that very, very kind introduction. You are so welcome. Every time you speak, people are just, just so happy that you're there. And, um, and I've heard you speak in many um, public venues. I'm just very grateful for you. So I want to jump in and ask you, just to start with, so you've been on my show numerous times when we had President Trump. We now have President Biden. Is there a difference in your view in the way in which the Trump administration interacted with China as compared with how the Biden administration is interacting with China? It's like night and day. President Trump imposed costs on China for unacceptable behavior. He broke five decades of engagement policy, which was a failure. You know, people thought that as we engaged China, as we worked with them, as cooperated with them, which helped China, that China would become benign as it became stronger. Well, the opposite was true. And indeed, you know, this uh, whole notion of engagement persisted long after everyone knew that it was a failure. Well, President Trump said, look, I'm not having it. And what he did was said, look, China's going to have to play by the rules, and we mean it. Now, with Biden, um, Biden has this outdated notion going back to those five decades of engagement. And we heard that at his CNN town hall a week ago, where he's talking to Anderson Cooper about human rights problems and all the rest of it. And for him, obviously, China was just another country that we could compete with. Well, no, it's not, because China has designated the United States to be its enemy, and we have got to understand the maliciousness of its designs. That's a great answer and uh, not an unexpected answer. It is an amazing uh, night and day uh, difference in terms of president. And I will go back to President Trump for a moment. President Trump's campaign, his presidency was all about prioritizing the needs and of the American economy, the American people, the country of America, the sovereignty of America. And that's just not where the uh, Biden administration um, is. It's not what they, the premise upon which they make policy. But I want to jump and ask you, there was an amazing thing, and I, I think I emailed you about this, but this China, China's um, foreign affairs minister, um, which is, whose name is Wang Yi, he actually had a statement put out uh, basically talking about his four requirements from Xi Jinping's regime. Um, it was a video conference where he presented uh, by the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, presented four demands uh, to America. Um, and they were, you know, this is in late February, so last month. Uh, basically, they were, I'll run through them with you. One was stop the wrong behavior in speeches. 
that condone Taiwan's independence or, or the separatist movement, basically stop meddling with Hong Kong, etc. That was demand number one. Demand number two, uh, resume U, uh, U.S.-China dialogue. Number three, ending the additional tariffs on Chinese products and sanctions while lifting sanctions. And number four, remove all restrictions on Chinese educational, cultural, news, and foreign affairs entities. So these are huge changes, demands being made by China. I want to start with the first one. So this gentleman, Wang Yi, said to essentially to America, he wanted to have, telling America, stop the wrong behavior and speeches that condone or even support Taiwan independence, stop meddling in Hong Kong, etc. What do you think the right answer is for America to a demand like that from China? Well, the United States should tell China in no uncertain terms, both privately and publicly, that the United States will defend Taiwan from an attack from China. Taiwan's really important to the United States because for more than a century, Debbie, we have drawn our Western defense perimeter off the coast of East Asia, and Taiwan is at the center of that line. It's where the East China Sea and South China Sea meet. That line's important to us because we want to prevent the Chinese Navy and Air Force from surging into the Western Pacific. So we must tell them that in no uncertain terms. But there's something even more important, and that is China is attacking our democracy every day and is attacking the whole notion of democracy. And we cannot allow the Chinese to absorb any democracy, including one as important as Taiwan. So for those two reasons, it's in our interest to defend Taiwan. Well, my next question was going to be kind of why doesn't America, you know, in China, to take China's argument, mind their own business, you know, that's the, the other side of the world, let them have Taiwan, let them control Hong Kong, what, what do we really care? But we actually have, America has vested interest in our own security in defending the, Taiwan and Hong Kong to, pr to protect our own interests in that part of the world. Correct? Yes, and there's something else that is a broader concept, and that is that if we've had any consistent foreign policy as a republic, going back to our founding, it's been the defense of the global commons. And we cannot allow China to close off portions of South China Sea, East China Sea, Yellow Sea. And the reason is that if that happens, then the Russians will close off the Black Sea and other countries will do the same thing and we'll have a balkanized world. That's not the way that we Americans and others conceive of this. We conceive of an open architecture for the international system. So that's another critical reason, because we're a trading nation. Yeah, thank goodness, right? <laughs> okay, so I, I love that you said that. Okay, so the second thing he demanded, he said, this guy, uh, I don't want to say his name correctly, uh, Wang Yi said, was that America, his demand of America is, we resume a U.S.-China dialogue. And essentially, I think he's kind of saying, whatever it was under President Trump wasn't exactly a dialogue. He wants to get back to what he's calling the normal dialogue. Where do you think he's headed with that? Why is he saying that? That Why is he making that demand? Well, because when the Chinese talk, um, we defer action. So the more that they drag things out, the less gets done. So we should stop talking to China. And we should, we've made it very clear. We've, we've talked to them for five decades and their behavior has only deteriorated, especially over the last 10 years. So we've told them what we want and what we demand, what we need. And I don't think we need to talk to them anymore. If they don't uh, adhere to normal standards of behavior, we've got to impose even greater costs on them. That's a great segue. The next demand, he said, the third demand uh, of the Chinese foreign minister to the new Biden administration. Third is to end additional tariffs on Chinese products, 
lifted sanctions on Chinese enterprises and institutes and support China's technology development. Basically, they're saying uh, that they have or the history is that China China is engaged in a comprehensive campaign to acquire advanced technologies, basically spied on uh, our products or through trade. So, I, I mean, is there any basis in the world that we should go along with this demand? Absolutely not. You know, the uh, uh, tariffs that President Trump imposed uh, beginning in 2018 under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, those were a remedy for the theft of intellectual property. China steals anywhere, and you can find estimates between $150 billion to $600 billion a year of U.S. IP. And we've got to stop that because that's a grievous loss. And those tariffs were meant to do that. Now, I think those tariffs were not high enough. Uh, I don't like the January 15, 2020 phase one trade deal. Um, but clearly, China has not stopped stealing our stuff. So, you know, we have no choice but to protect our intellectual property, protect our innovation, because if we don't, we don't have an economy of the future. If we don't have an economy of the future, Debbie, we don't have the United States of America. Love that. And actually, the last one, which I, I thought about and planned this interview, because I have so many things I want to points I want to hit with you. I thought about only doing this one. But the fourth one was to remove all restrictions on Chinese educational, cultural, news and foreign affairs entities. And I think you and I have talked about in the past about how the Confucius Institutes were set up at, at American campuses. And, and it's all it was po posited as, isn't that really wonderful? It's cultural understanding, aren't we great? And the fact was it was propagandizing. But talk a little bit about what they're talking about, why they are so interested in having, uh, removing all restrictions on Chinese educational, cultural, et cetera, entities in America. China uses every point of contact with our society to try to undermine America and indeed to overthrow the U.S. government as they did last year. And so they've got Confucius Institutes on campus, which, you know, are relatively small in size if you look at them, but they have extraordinary influence because college administrators um, really bow down to the Chinese. And, and in many cases, that's what's happening. But it's not only the Confucius Institutes. Um, it's also about 500 or so Confucius classrooms in secondary schools. You've got, uh, um. you mentioned journalists. Uh, most of those journalists are basically spies. Um, I can remember um, about 10 years ago, I was at an event in Washington, D.C., and a guy from um, China Legal Daily, who's their bureau chief in the United States, came up to me and started chatting. And I was thinking, why would China Legal Daily need to have a guy in Washington? I mean, clearly what was occurring was uh, spying and espionage. And I'm glad that uh, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, actually started to declare them to be foreign missions and to restrict them, because we absolutely need to do that. I think we should toss them all out. Love that. And I will say, you mentioned earlier, um, one of your answers, you mentioned that this one thing you were describing was kind of part of the broader effort of the Chinese government and it's kind of gradual takeover of America. I don't know if that's your exact words, but can you describe what you were talking about? Well, last year, um, China um, was using its troll farms, its social media platforms to incite violence on American streets. So, for instance, Radio Free Asia reports, you know, you're in Texas. So Radio Free Asia reports that an intelligence unit of the People's Liberation Army based themselves in the now closed Houston consulate. And from there, they used big data and artificial intelligence to identify Americans 
likely to participate in Antifa and Black Lives Matter protests. And then the PLA, the Chinese military, sent them videos via TikTok on how to riot. That's more than just an act of subversion. That's an act of war. And indeed, um, with regard to the January 6th Capitol Hill insurrection or riot or whatever you want to call it, China was encouraging Americans to participate in violent acts. So again, we're seeing an attempt to overthrow the American government. And I don't know how you cooperate with a government that seeks your destruction. So I don't get this whole notion of the Biden administration that we can cooperate with China on certain matters. No, you cannot cooperate with a regime that seeks to overthrow your own government. Uh, amen to that. And I do. I know over the last couple of years in doing this show, I've had you and other experts on trying to paint a picture of why people in America should be more concerned about China. Because for many years, the idea was posited that if we Americans kept kept up our trade, kept having uh, we had more and more manufacturing occurring over there, we were kind of helping China pull itself out of the darkness of communism, that we would spread the ideas of freedom and we'd eventually lift up the Chinese people and maybe even the government. And 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 so that was kind of a that was a long held and, and kind of a savvy, allegedly savvy way to look at China. But you and others have been pointing out, and now it seems very obvious, that was, that was just, we were just being played by China all along. Can you address that a little bit? Yeah. Now, if you look at the whole sweep of history, if you're talking in hundreds of years or centuries uh, or millennia, yeah, that theory probably holds water. But the problem was we don't live in millennia long time frames. We live in the here and now. And in the here and now, what's happened is that as the Chinese regime has gotten stronger, it's become more ambitious. And their ambitions are to rule the world. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has been dropping hints for more than a decade that the world should move away from the Westphalian international order that's been in place since 1648 and adopt China's notions of Tianxia or all under heaven, which means that Chinese emperors had the right, and matter of fact, were compelled by heaven to rule everything. And so essentially, this is what China is trying to do. It's trying to not just cooperate or compete with us, it's trying to rule the entire world. And Debbie, just to put another point on this, China's lunar exploration officials have been talking about the moon as sovereign Chinese territory. If they get first, they the intend moon, wait, wait, to The moon? The moon? Yes, they're I'm talking sorry, about, okay. well, and, and oh. I should point out that they're also talking about Mars moon and mars as should be sovereign chinese territory that if they get there first what they are going to do is try to exclude others so this is not just some sort of innocent civilian space exploration program this is really a danger that's the way they look at it uh, yes this is ludicrous um this is completely silly um but it's that's the way they think and, and we've got to deal with them the way they think one other point, Debbie. People think that China ruling the world and maybe the near solar system is impossible. But we know that China is developing pathogens that will leave the Chinese alone and will sicken everybody else. Now, I don't think that they've succeeded in doing that. But if they were to succeed, that is not impossible that they could end up with everybody else, complete, their civilization. This is a civilization killer. They could end up in a point where they could rule the world. Now, I don't think it's likely, 
but this is their ambitions and we got to take that into account. We got to deal with the Chinese the way they are, not the way that we want them to be, not the way we think they should be. We got to deal with the way they are today. Gordon, first of all, I'm sorry I interrupted you. When you said moon, I, I, I actually wonder if I misheard you. That, that's amazing that they, that they even think that way. And I love your point. We can't deal with them as though, in a way, you think, oh, they're probably just like America. They happen to have a different economic system, but they're really good people. This, this uh, determination to become the one world ruler, uh, we've been talking about it for a couple of years on this show with you and others. But I think that it just sounds so foreign and crazy to most Americans. They think, well, they can't be serious, but they really are. They, and that kind of segues to my next thing. So there was an announcement that in China, that BBC World News was going to be banned from broadcasting in their country. And you had comments about that, thought that was a dangerous thing. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, the BBC, um, at the beginning of last month, did this uh, important study about institutionalized rape in what the Chinese call Xinjiang, the northwestern part of the country where the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs are. And of course, that irritated Beijing to no end. But at the same time, about a week or so afterwards, um, the British broadcasting authorities actually disconnected, uh, took away the license for CGTN, which is state media propaganda outlet. And they did that because, not because of what CGTN was really doing, um, but because they failed to meet technical requirements of responding to inquiries and stuff like that. And also CGTN did broadcast one of these confession videos, which violated British standards. So they pulled the plug on um, China. And so China decided to pull the plug on the BBC, which is what they did about a week after that. And so right now the BBC is no longer has access in China. Now, that's not such a big deal because BBC was restricted to a few foreign compounds and some hotels. But nonetheless, this shows China's closing itself off from the rest of the world. China's done this numerous times during the imperial era. Um, they did it during the early years of the People's Republic and has always, always led to disaster for the Chinese people. Gordon, that actually ties into another topic related to, because it, interesting, you're talking about China trying to push the rest of the world out, you know, not have them within their own borders. But at the same time, China is so aggressive here in America, as you were talking about. I also saw a report that China is buying up private schools in the United Kingdom. And I didn't even, I don't know if I mentioned this to you ahead of time, but are you aware of that story? And, is, and are you alarmed by that? Yeah, we always have to be alarmed when uh, the Chinese regime, uh, one way or another, is able to control uh, educational institutions in the free world. Um, I mean, it's bad enough um, what we see on college campuses today, but to have um, you know Communist Party orthodoxy being taught in schools in free societies is just abhorrent. Um, we can't do that in China, so why should they be able to do that in our societies? There's basic lack of reciprocity. And also that issue of reciprocity goes with regard to the Confucius Institutes and the Confucius classrooms. We, we can't have a Reagan Institute in China. <laughs> and it goes to TikTok and WeChat and all the other apps. American apps are not allowed in China. So why do we allow Chinese apps in our country, especially when they've been used for surveillance and other purposes and the rest of it? But even if they were model citizens, which they're not, but even if they were model citizens, 
this issue of reciprocity. So this is just crazy, Debbie, that we allowed China to do these things in our country when we don't have reciprocal rights in their country. Speaking of things they do in America, that China does in America, I've been wanting to ask you this for the longest time, and I keep forgetting. I keep reading about China purchasing farmland in Texas, and well, maybe all over America, but in Texas. And honestly, I, I, I mean, I'm sure you have a good answer. What, what, what would be their motive for China buying farmland in Texas? Well, the one purchase that has attracted attention is in the southern part of the uh, state, um, and it's not far from Laughlin Air Force Base. And many people are speculating that China wants to surveil the Air Force Base. I mean, the Chinese say they want to build a, a wind farm um, there, but you know that really is suspicious. And, and Debbie, this is not just Texas. There are reports recently that Chinese are coming over and buying portions of Oklahoma and Kansas um, and Southern Missouri, I heard a couple days ago. And we don't know the reason for this. I think part of it is capital flight, that uh, wealthy Chinese are becoming very concerned about what's happening in their country. And so they want to come over here and get their money out of China. But whatever it is, it's occurring very fast and we need to get a handle on it. And we can do that because we have um, rules which require purchases by foreigners to go through the CFIUS review process. That's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's an interagency task force run by the Treasury Department, and it can prevent uh, foreign acquisitions of U.S. assets. So we need to start doing this until we can figure out what the devil is going on. So these are, uh, I'm so glad I asked that. So these are actually these purchases, so far as we know, of farmland in America. These are wealthier Chinese citizens, not the CCP or the government directly. Is that right? Um, we believe, or I believe that, yes, much of this, not all of it, but much of this is just wealthy Chinese. But some of this are Chinese companies, which, um, even though they're nominally private, um, still are required to uh, further the goals of the Communist Party. Um, there's Article 7 and 14 of China's National Intelligence Law of 2017 that requires every Chinese entity, state, non-state, whatever, um, to commit acts of espionage if required. It also applies, by the way, to Chinese individuals, um, people who hold oh. PRC nationality. So this means students on our campuses are under a legal compulsion to spy if demanded. So we have yet to figure out how to deal with this. And until we do, we need to cut links with China because we are just being overwhelmed by China. FBI, local law enforcement, federal government, state governments, we're just being overwhelmed at the moment. That, that is truly shocking. One last thing. I could, honestly, if, if you had three hours, I could take that long. But one last topic, if you have another minute here. Sure. Which, ha which has to do with, uh, there was a movement during toward the end of the Trump administration to try to prevent uh, Chinese companies Tra being traded on American stock exchanges um, from if, if those companies in some way benefit the Chinese Communist Party. And so there was, and I'm not sure where it ended up at the end of the Trump administration, but I read things that sound like uh, President Biden is, is trying to, is, is saying he's fine with that, to have Chinese companies traded on American stock exchanges, even though those, uh, those entities may end up supporting or helping the Chinese Communist Party. Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, there, there are two issues here, and they're related. One is Chinese companies listed on U.S. exchanges not required to meet disclosure requirements that companies, American companies and others, are required to. The other issue uh, is Americans investing into military-linked companies on the Chinese markets. At President Trump, Executive Order 13959 of November 12, 2020, prevented Americans from investing in those military-linked companies. Um, President Biden's Treasury Department on January 26 has deferred the application of a part of Executive Order 13959 um, until May 27th. And that allows Americans to invest in companies in China, including companies that have been sanctioned by the U.S., um, but companies that are, you know, helping the Chinese military um, build up their weapons um, that are designed to kill Americans. So um, this is a hideous thing that the that the Biden administration did. It most certainly is. Gordon Chang, you are a fount of knowledge. I am so grateful you have me available today. And really, as we start out on this apparently four-year venture with a new president, President Biden, or soon to be probably President Harris, um, watching what's occurring with China, what it means for America's freedom is going to be one of the many issues we have to keep our eyes, uh, we have to keep closely focused on. So thank you so very much for joining me today. Well, thank you so very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Me too. Okay, talk to you next time. Okay, folks, I got to tell you, I put the links up. The articles we were talking about are all listed on our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. I put a lot of, artic lot of articles up today. I urge you to read them because I think that um, it's great to hear an expert like Gordon Chang. And he is, you know, just, I mean, it's amazing how he can, he has all of the, the dates and the order numbers and, the, and just so many things he has, he just knows personally and can just speak about them freely. But the information is really important for Americans to understand. This is not just a, um, you know, random intel, uh, intellectual discussion about a different foreign policy between the current administration in China and the past administration in China. This is about how much we concede or surrender to uh, the Chinese. In fact, he mentioned the name again, that ancient philosophy now again embraced by Xi Jinping, that Qianxia idea, which is China is intended and meant by heaven to rule the world. This is how Xi Jinping talks about and believes in this. And many of the things his administration has been doing, the CCP has been doing, are part of that effort, that long-term effort, that long game that we don't always recognize in America. So very grateful Gordon Chang could join us. Okay, one last topic today. I, uh, I want to talk about the Equality Act, but you know what? I'm, I do want to talk about the Equality Act. I want to mention one thing I meant to say at the start, which is today is Texas Independence Day. Yay. You know, if you're in Texas, it's a big day. People celebrate it. It's, a, you know, a, a Texas, Texas Independence Day. And I don't know if it happened uh, fortuitously or, or otherwise, but today our governor, Texas Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott, we have been, unlike Florida, which has been far more open under COVID restrictions, Texas has been fairly, uh, has continued under mask mandates, continued under uh, restrictions of all kinds with respect to restaurants, public businesses, social distancing, you know, how many seats can be open, just all sorts of rules in Texas have been in place uh, far more than the, uh, the more like the Florida uh, rules and regulations have been. But today, 
Governor Abbott announced that on this Texas Independence Day uh, that I think he floated as the 13th, so it's a week from tomorrow, uh, that all restrictions are listed in Texas, mask mandates gone, you know, all the regulations relating to businesses and how many people you can have inside of a restaurant or a bar. And, you know, I will tell you, it's good news and so I will celebrate it. I'm very glad. I love freedom. I love the idea of personal responsibility of citizens and the, their freedom to make their decisions as opposed to government mandates. I'm very much in favor of that. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful, actually, that Governor Abbott came along and did it now in Texas because, you know, we have we can watch how leftist states are functioning. We now have Governor Newsom in California facing a recall election because of his, maybe because of many things, but at least in great part, his ongoing very draconian uh, regulations related to COVID. So you have the leftist Governor Newsom in California. You have the leftist governor of Michigan, uh, Whitmer, who's, you know, uh, still on crackdown mode. Uh, you have New York kind of floundering around. And then you have a great state like Florida, where you have Governor DeSantis, who has been from the beginning very, very careful to not limit the freedom of his citizens. Just a very, very uh, more a, a pro-conservative, pro-freedom pro-respect for the individual mindset that led to the policies of Governor um, DeSantis in Florida. It's a great thing. So we're happy about this in Texas. I will float a little bit of a, and I don't like to be cynical, a little bit of a cynical idea, which was at CPAC last week, where uh, we showed some scenes from CPAC and President Trump's speech there. Um, at CPAC, they did a straw poll for uh, the upcoming, you know, for the 2024 presidency, which is, of course, is several years away. But in the straw poll, beside that uh, President Trump won it, and so the majority of people at CPAC said they would support President Trump if he ran again in 2024. Second highest vote getter was Governor DeSantis in Florida, uh, and he's widely regarded as a serious contender. But Governor Abbott in Texas has been among those whose name is floated around as a possible presidential candidate in 2024. But at CPAC, which is, by the way, I'll acknowledge, definitely... It's not a Republican gathering, it's a conservative gathering. So these are the kind of more, you know, uh, freedom-based, uh, believing in the rights of the individual, the more conservative, uh, I, I think they're kind of heart and soul of America thinkers. These are, you know, mainstream, mainstream Americans, but they're the conservatives. And when they did their straw poll, I believe Governor Abbott came in last, like, like you know, didn't even get to 1%, it was zero point something or other. And that had to sting a little bit, I think, because I think that Governor Abbott coming from Texas and assuming that, you know, most people in the country will assume if you come from Texas, you're probably a really rock solid conservative and look at Texas. So I think there might have been a little bit of an um, impetus from uh, the fact of that outcome at the CPAC poll that made Governor Abbott think, you know what, it's about time to stop this mask mandate stuff. So anyway, that was a great thing. Um, and so yay for Texas. Now, on the Equality Act, I had this story ready yesterday and I ran out of time. And I do want to get to it. Uh, so I'll start with the idea that the Equality Act, uh, is, it, it, again, as everything the left does, they have the best names. They, have the, they think of the best, most compelling names. I mean, who could be against equality? Who could say, no, I don't like equality? But what this Equality Act is that passed the House, so it's not law yet, but it passed the House, is now going to face a hearing in the Senate. Uh, the Equality Act is to add, you know, we had in America Title VII, 
which essentially said that you could not discriminate. It was a federal law, Title VII. Uh, you cannot discriminate based on race, sex, national origin, uh, I think religion. So basically it was an anti-discrimination law saying, you know, as an employer, you cannot discriminate against people because of their race, sex, national origin, blah, blah, blah. And so the Equality Act of 2021, which they, the Democrats also voted in 2019, but the Equality Act is adding uh, LGBTQ and especially and including transgender and gender identity as protected categories. So it means that you cannot discriminate against somebody, a, a business provider, and all sorts of, we'll get to in a moment how extremely broad this is, but you can't discriminate against people based on LGBTQ status, including gender identity and transgender um, identity. So the reason um, that I wanted to mention this today is because this is one of the really big issues that will change America more than people think. You might think, well, okay, you know, I probably wouldn't have voted that for that if I were in Congress, but you know, we're just adding something to a federal law, but it will change your daily life. It will change the rights of women. Everyone points to, and I will too, the simple idea about women's sports. Now, when you think about the crazy of this, it used to be the cause of the leftists to say, you have to have equality in sports. So you had all these college programs that had sports uh, scholarships for guys. And so that, you know, for decades, we had sports scholarship for football and basketball and whatever other sports. And so there was a, an enormous push several years ago, say you got, it was Title IX, saying you gotta give women those same rights. And so we had a, just a, an industry built up around the idea that women should get, have the same opportunity as men in college sports, have scholarships provided. So you had women's sports, and of course, women's sports tended to be, uh, basketball was a big one, but also, you know, soccer and field hockey, and a lot of the um, field, the field uh, sports, like, rate, like running and, you know, races and jumping and uh, all sorts of, you know, the, the kind of uh, track and field um, events, all those kind of things, were opened up to women to give them equal access to college scholarships. So the whole point used to be of the open-minded protect women mindset of women should have equal access to college scholarships based on sports as guys do. But what this bill will do, because it includes gender identity, is if you are a physiological male, you're a biological male, you were born a male, you have male anatomy, if you merely identify, if you say you identify as a woman, that even though you have male features and you have, as everybody knows, despite the effort of the leftists to try to say there's no difference all between men and women, the average man is taller, bigger, stronger, and faster. They're just different physiology that men have on average versus women. So now all these women who had the potential to get a college scholarship to go to college and compete and, and actually they, and like every other kid who's ever played a college sport, you start in about fifth grade and you, your life is dedicated to, to improving your skills, to becoming the best in your school, your district, whatever, wherever you're competing. 
So you might get one of those scholarships. Girls, just like guys do, girls dedicate themselves to getting to the point where they might actually get a college scholarship because they can show on their resume, look, I won weightlifting. And they have, by the way, wrestling, wrestling. I won, you know, this race. I won this uh, meet. I was the fastest. I was the best. I won wrestling. And now, if this bill were to become law, guys, every college, every school, everybody, every institution would have to agree that any guy who says, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I'm a girl, forget about whether they are genuinely suffering from some kind of mental problem that makes them think, even though they are physiologically a male, that they makes them think they're female, or whether they, are, they really are, str are struggling with that, that uh, gender dysphoria, or whether they're pretending to, school can't know, nobody could know. So some guy says, yeah, you know, now they think about it, I'm gonna run in the women's race. I'm gonna compete in the women's weightlifting. I'm gonna compete in the women's uh, wrestling. And there are already cases and stories, a mountain of them, where girls who were on track to win events because of the years and years of effort they placed into getting ready to being the best can, are not going to win anymore because people who are actually anatomically male are allowed to compete in women's sports. So women's sports is one category that you would think any woman, any feminist, anyone who stands up for women will be saying, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You cannot have men competing in women's sports and pretend that it's all the same and they're just like a different kind of guy, you know? You, you can't, you can't, this is, I mean, the absurdity is, is kind of breathtaking. But in addition to that kind of very, been spoken about a lot, there are many, many other ways in which all this Equality Act stuff becomes just absurd. For example, since you can't discriminate based on gender identity, what do you do with, and this case, a, a case like this has already happened, where you have a women's shelter, a domestic violence shelter. There was one in San Francisco, I believe it was San Francisco where this case came up, where a guy showed up and said, yeah, I, I'm a victim of domestic abuse. I wanna to get to stay in the women's shelter. Now the shelter is like, you know, kind of the all housed together. So these women getting away from abusive males, trying to get in the domestic women, domestic you know, shelter to protect them from abuse and the shelter said, I'm sorry, this is for women. You know, you, you, can't, you can't come here. And the local, it was in California, the local state-based agency took the case on behalf of a guy and argued that it was discrimination, unlawful discrimination. Now that might sound absurd, and at that time it occurred, it was, it was under California law, but if this becomes federal law, every single women's domestic abuse shelter, every single women's center of any kind is going to have no basis in law to reject an anatomical male who shows up and says, hey, you know what, I'm feeling kind of female today. No basis at all. Same with public restrooms. Same with public showers. Like you have showers in gyms, you have showers at public schools. Every single place in which the sanity of American civilized Western civilization has divided facilities to give women and girls their showers and boys and men their showers. It's all gone, all gone. Any guy can use any girl's shower and this is all 
and uh, from the uh, left to left's point of view, an issue of equality, equality. Moving on from that, these are religious freedom connotations about this. Many pastors, teachers, Christian schools want to teach children that they have they're made in God's image, that they were created by God, and that they are created a girl or created a boy. Is that teaching going to be legal? Is it going to be legal if you can't discriminate based on gender identity and based on being transgender? I mean, the absurd, the, the number of idiotic, absurd examples goes on and on, but it's a religious freedom question. It's a women's privacy question. It's a women's sports question. It's also because, and, and I'm not exaggerating, I tell you, this would transform America in ways that I'm going to tell you, you know, we talk about many times, did the Biden voters really vote for this? I am telling you, the majority of Americans, and I would wager even the majority of Biden voters, how many votes he really got, never anticipated, did not want this. And so another one was a, a, a mandate about abortion. If you're a doctor, a hospital, a, a you know, healthcare provider of any kind, the bill specifically does not allow you to discriminate based on the kind of care you're willing to offer a patient. Right now, many hospitals, especially Catholic hospitals, but other hospitals will say they're not going to mandate that a doctor or a nurse perform an abortion or participate in performing an abortion if it violates their, their religious beliefs, if it violates their religious tenets. But that is... That's, no longer going to be permitted under this bill. You can't accommodate the religious values of a doctor who doesn't wish to perform in this. It is sex, considered sex discrimination to refuse to do an abortion. Just think about that. Sex discrimination to refuse to do an abortion. Same thing, and even more troubling, with surgery to perform trans, to, to change someone's gender from male to female. Many doctors find this morally reprehensible, morally unacceptable, will not do it. But under this bill, you're not going to be able to say that. You will be committing a violation of federal law if you will not participate in the transitioning of an individual male to female or female to male. I mean, the actual biological destruction and mutilation of the body involved in doing that kind of transgendering. And you know, I deeply, truly mean this. I don't think that there are 10% of Americans who actually believe if they knew what was in this bill would say, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm for that. Not true. It's just, it, it couldn't be true. Certainly not a majority of Republicans. And the idea that the left has now seized power in Washington for whatever it is, six weeks since we've had the Biden White House and the Democrat-controlled House and Senate and the most outlandish, far-reaching, illogical, and talk about not following the science, unscientific legislation, and it's skated through the House. I think in the Senate, it may run into a little bit of problem. <clears throat> but I want to mention also, when I talk about the intolerance of the left, you know, among the reasons that conservatives don't like this kind of legislation is that they say it violates the freedom of religion. That if you're a, you know, a, a doctor with, with religious beliefs with respect to transgenderism and abortion, or you're a school, <clears throat> a school teacher, a pastor, 
wishing to teach children about the idea of created by God, with and you, you created a male or female, as the Bible recounts in Genesis, and the idea that you're, you aren't allowed to teach that, that saying that might be a violation of federal law. And there was a really, really telling quote that came out of Representative Jerry Nadler, who is that odious member of US Congress from New York, just an odious human being. But in response to a comment on the Equality Act when they were going to pass it, people made some reference to what about religious people and God's will and their belief about God's will. And his quote out of his mouth was, God's will is no concern of this Congress. They don't care about the religious values of the people. They don't care about the idea that religion matters, that Christian, Judeo-Christian beliefs matter to many millions and millions of Americans. And the other thing I'll say in closing on the Equality Act, I'm going to just tell you, there was a um, hearing in Congress in which um, a doctor was being, uh, one of the things were going to be appointed to a position, I think it was HHS, we'll hear in a minute, but is Dr. Rachel Levine. And uh, this doctor was, is up for nomination and has to go through the process in the Senate. And so Senator Rand Paul, who is newly becoming one of my favorite senators, he's from Kentucky, you know, he's Republican, but he's really kind of libertarian, but he did a great Q&A with his Dr. Rachel Levine. I want to ask Matt the Wonderful to play this clip, and then we'll talk about it. Genital mutilation has been nearly universally condemned. Genital mutilation has been condemned by the WHO, the United Nations Children's Fund, the United Nations Population Fund. According to the WHO, Genital mutilation is recognized internationally as a violation of human rights. Genital mutilation is considered particularly egregious because, as the WHO notes, it is nearly always carried out on minors and is a violation of the rights of children. American culture is now normalizing the idea that minors can be given hormones to prevent their biological development of their secondary sexual characteristics. Dr. Levine, you have supported both allowing minors to be given hormone blockers to prevent them from going through puberty, as well as surgical destruction of a minor's genitalia. The American College of Pediatricians reports that 80 to 95% of prepubertal children with gender dysphoria will experience resolution by late adolescence if not exposed to medical intervention and social affirmation. Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision as changing one's sex? Well, Senator, thank you for your interest in this question. Um, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I will look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars of the standards of care for transgender yeah, medicine. The specific question was about minors. Let's be a little more specific since you evaded the question. Do you support the government intervening to override the parent's consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery of breasts and genitalia? Okay, the reason I wanted to play that in closing out, and we're nearly out of time in the show today, but I wanted to play that is, first of all, if it wasn't obvious that Dr. Rachel Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, or Levine, uh, is currently holds some position, I think in the state of Pennsylvania, in the government. But this was a hearing to confirm uh, Dr. Levine as the Assistant Secretary of Health. 
and Human Services. Assistant Secretary of Health, if it wasn't obvious, that is a guy. Dr. Rachel Levin is a guy. I am unaware and uninterested in understanding, you know, the where um, Dr. Levin stands in the in the process of, of wanting to transition into being a woman. But this is someone who's sitting there going to make policy decisions, policy decisions, at least interpretive, at least putting out for, on behalf of the U.S. government, the, the, uh, the issue, the uh, statements, the standards that relate to things like transgenderism and the, as, as Senator Rand Paul rightly calls it, gentle mutilation. And Dr. Levin would not even answer the question about whether or not it is permissible and acceptable for the government or the, and the medical field in America to override the objections of a parent and permit, allow the genital mutilation of a minor child, genital mutilation of a minor child who thinks, who he or she thinks at some point really wishes there were the other gender, uh, whether it is a, a minor wine, a, a minor girl wanting to become a boy or a boy wanting to become a girl. When parents are involved, this person, Dr. Levin, could not even answer the question whether that was okay that the medical community could just override the parents' objections or that the medical community could permit and authorize those kinds of mutilating procedures on young people who don't have any parent in their, in their lives to stand up for them. Rand Paul read a quick story in one of the questions. I couldn't play the whole segment. But he, had a, he had a quote uh, from a young woman, a 23-year-old woman, who was homeless as a young person, didn't have parents in her life. She's a minor, got involved, whatever reason she got down the path of thinking she really was a guy, and went through gentle mutilation, uh, taking some of the uh, medications to prevent her normal development into womanhood, and then realized, as she's now 23, just saying, I don't want to be a guy. I'm not a guy. And yet her statement was just heart-rending, and Rand Paul's reading it because she's saying, basically, where are the grown-ups in this country? Why didn't someone help me? I was young. I was homeless. I was lost. I was, my, my life was a mess. And I got off on some crazy track, and no one in this country, no one in the medical community knew enough to step up and say, you know what, hold off here. You can do this later, but, but you know, you're young and you're confused and uh, this is not a good idea. But, you know, I talked yesterday in the show about this, how we are being treated in America to the argument by the left that everything they say must be believed, must be accepted, regardless of how absurd, regardless of how patently, obviously wrong, dishonest, that what they're saying is, it is just like we are being subjected to a, an avalanche of lies about life, an avalanche of lies about America, an avalanche of lies about everything. And this is one of them, an avalanche of lies from the left that would say that somehow it is good medical practice for a minor to be able to get gender transitioning surgery over the objections of their parents, because after all, the medical community uh, has sized it up and believes, yeah, I think this probably really is a girl who wants to be a guy or vice versa. I mean, the, the whole concept that we're discussing 
you know, and, in fact, I'll, one other point I'll make, and then really we'll wrap it up. But it used to be the case that in our country, you know, you the, the idea of, of having a woman who wanted to transition to be a man or vice versa, you know, the, the Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, and you know, whatever, whichever way they wanted to transition, there were always, you know, a, a tiny segment of people who seemed to genuinely feel this way, genuinely thought they were, you know, born in the wrong body, genuinely needed to be transitioned. And so long as they're adults, there was not, I mean, I don't know, at some point in our history, there may have been, it may have been illegal, but for many years, it's been legal if you want to do that as an adult. That is one question. As an adult, as a, you know, sane adult, if you want to choose that, in our country, we have a country based on freedom and you can do that. But this is how the lies of the left just persist and push and persist and push. Because now we're talking about transitioning young children. We have a case in Texas involving, I think the kid's eight now. This little boy is eight and his mom is trying to push that he gets the uh, hormone blocker so he doesn't develop normally as a young boy's body would develop as, as they grow into being a young man and then becoming a, a full-fledged adult male. She's trying to stop him at age eight. And yet we all sit back and go, well, that's reasonable, that could be. And we're just being fed a parade of lies. And it's cruel to young people. You heard the statistic Rand Paul said, you know, we have that American, I think it's the American Academy of Pediatrics or American Academy of Physicians said, you know, 85 to 90 percent of people, of kids who experience this kind of, you know, confusion, gender dysphoria, it resolves by the end of adolescence. And they don't feel that way anymore. And yet we humor that. We go along with and let them have move forward with this surgery, which is obviously, I mean, the thing that Rand Paul read to her, read to Dr. Levin, it was just, it was heartrending. This girl's 23. She's mutilated her body. She has blocked the normal development of what should have should occur as you grow into being a woman. And she doesn't want to be a guy. She, she's like, she's lost. And this is her whole life. I did read you, and you can't, you know, begin the process again of hormones later when you're 23 and 25 and expect it to work. So we're letting a, just a parade of lies of the left be presented to America, and we're all supposed to nod along and pretend it's true. Same thing with gender identity. It's, it's, it used to be an understanding that you had adults who said, you know, I've always, whatever, thought I was the opposite gender. I really want to change genders. And as an adult, you could do that. But we're now, under the Equality Act, elevating that confusion and and I, I, have, I truly believe there are some people, I think it's a tiny percent, but some people who actually feel this way, but we're elevating that into a protected class that we're going to normalize it and legitimize it. And I'll tell you one last thing I really am going to go because I'm past my time. I can't, good thing I can't see Matt because he's probably saying, can you wrap it up already? But one last thing about this point and then we will wrap up. But the concept, the change from recognizing some people struggle, and so we have to try to help them as they're adults and they want to perform the surgery, have the surgery performed, uh, and, you know, they can do this, to this gender identity as though it's a, as, as though it's a real thing 
That is a, you know, a, like some people are, you know, exceptionally shy. Some people are whatever the different categories of personality. Gender identity, just kind of another thing. This might be you. The numbers of people, the percentage of people who identify as having gender identity issues, gender dysphoria issues, the percentage is growing, is increasing. And my question is, if it's natural, if this is just the way it is, a certain percentage of people who are born really are you know, experiencing gender dysphoria and really are not the gender that they were born in, why would that change? What is the reason that would change? And the answer is because part of what's happening is all the affirmation, legitimizing, uh, and, and normalizing gender confusion is actually causing more young people to identify that way than, than, they, than did in the past. It is like this societal encouragement, legitimization, and then you get to the case of this girl, like the one I mentioned, is 23, who just had a very hard life, was homeless, all sorts of bad things happening to her. And so this whole societal encouragement of this is normal, this is real, got to the point where she signed up for and went through with this surgery to mutilate her own, her, she had her breasts removed, I don't know what else she had done internally, but she tried to transition to a guy. Now she's 23, she doesn't want to be a guy, but she did this to herself. There's just a, there's a cruelty, to, there's a cruelty to legitimizing this gender dysphoria, gender identity as a normal thing because it, it causes more people who are young people who are otherwise just a little bit lost, a little bit confused to go down this path. And when, as you saw, heard from the American Academy of, of, of Physicians, if, they, if you don't go forward, don't have them at a very young age of adolescence, don't go through the drugs and the surgery and wait till they mature into adolescence, in most cases, 85 to 90% drops away. That kind of thinking drops away. And I just think there's a, you know, if you talk about wanting to be tender and caring and concerned about people, the answer of being tender and caring and, conserve and, and caring about people is not always to give in to whatever it is they claim is going on right then, whatever they claim their identity is. We have to be the adults in the room, the adults in our culture, the adults in our country, and protect young people from this, this rampant determination of leftism to legitimize, glorify, expand, normalize gender confusion at young ages where you may end up actually with, we have ended up with many people in the position, this 23-year-old that Rand Paul was reading about, re talking to Dr. Levin about, confused and left very, very permanently damaged in her life because we didn't have the capacity as the adults in the room in America to say, you don't do that when you're so young. Don't give yourself a chance to figure out life and to get life back on track before you do this. So I know this is a tender topic and I, I've got to wrap it up, but I, I think it's important for people who love this country and we can talk in our country, in this show all the time about tax policy, immigration policy, you know, border security, military, but these cultural issues, they shape America too. They deeply shape America. And what percentage of Americans are, uh, are normal or healthy, are mentally healthy, are on track? And when we have the advocacy by someone who wants to serve as the Assistant Secretary of Health, 
who can't even acknowledge that perhaps we should not engage in gender transition surgery and prescriptions and hormones for young people. You know, we're, we're not doing right by our young people. We're not doing right by entertaining this as a serious thought that you would do to young people in this country. We have to do a better job protecting them from this kind of wild determination on the left to encourage and, um, and just foment and exaggerate gender confusion um, rather than affirming, rather than having them live in a society where we're more likely to be affirming their natural God-given identity. I didn't mean to go off on that rift today, actually, folks. It got to me, so I did. So, as I do at the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started with America rattled and what to do about it. H.R. 1 is the election, uh, steal all future elections bill, H.R. 5, Equality Act, Amnesty for All, silencing political opposition as domestic terror, which is what the Biden administration has proposed doing. Anyone discussing uh, that they're not sure about the election outcome of 2020 could be labeled domestic terrorists. Troops in D.C. around barbed wire capital, courts joining the swamp, impending COVID and Green New Deal tyranny, government, corporate, media, big tech complex controlling all of life, and all this following an election, not of the man who has 31 million Americans watching last week at CPAC, but of the man that had 669 people watching last week as he gave his presidential celebratory COVID vaccine White House briefing. The collective weight of the mountain of lies engulfing America and the relentlessness and speed at which they are being told and implemented is dawning on millions of Americans. Ordinary Americans are going to have to save America with extraordinary efforts, support state legislatures that are resisting, be informed, be alert, speak out, stand up, share America Can We Talk, join as a member before April. I'll talk more about membership tomorrow. And on the Equality Act and Senator Rand Paul, decades of civil rights activism brought equality to men and women in sports. The Equality Act undoes all of that progress in one bill. The physiology of men and women are not the same and pretending otherwise is not progress. The Equality Act codifies confusion. Senator Paul's questioning of Rachel Levine was rightly focused, not about Levine, but about the federal government's view of the surgical reengineering of children's gender. Americans are being pushed to reject foundational Judeo-Christian moral teaching for the godless religion of radical leftism. The Equality Act is not good for America. And did Americans really vote for this in November of 2020? And clearly the answer is no. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you